Welcome to the latest message in our Words for Life podcast, which highlights the teaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. Today's message is the second message in a series titled Stronger, where the challenge to our church family is not to grow bigger as a church in 2024, but rather to grow stronger. In today's sermon, we will look at two critical next steps that every spirit-filled Christian should take. Join Pastor Chris Anderson for part one of a message titled, Everyone Taking Next Steps. When she got out of the shower, her husband was still in bed. And so she, she said to him frustratedly, she said, when are you going to get up? When are you going to get ready for church? To which the husband replied, he's like, I'm not going today. And quite honestly, I'm not sure if I'm going to go back at all. He says, but if you can give me one good reason to get out of bed and, and to get ready for church today, I'll at least go, agree to go today. The wife replied, I can do one better than that. I'll give you two good reasons. Number one, you're 50 years old. Part of being a grown-up is doing what you should do whether you feel like it or not. And number two, you're the pastor, so get out of bed. <laughs> that was a live look in our house this morning. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm just like you. This morning it was hard getting out of bed. This morning it was I wanted to stay under those, those covers. But unlike you, I have to preach today. Uh, but I am also uh, living, and as pastors, we live with the deep conviction that our church is only collectively as strong as the people who are com- uh, that are committed individually. The inspiration for the name of this series actually came from all the conversations that we as staff wrestle with, uh, not how we can grow the church bigger, but how we can grow stronger. Every week on our Facebook page, uh, you may have noticed that we actually um, post a, a quote from the sermon, and then in it we link to the sermon, and you can go watch it. You can listen to it on a, on a podcast. In fact, this will be a shameless plug. When you see that, and we know that you see it because Facebook tells us how many people actually see it, go ahead and hit that like button. It's not that hard. Just go like. And man, if it really spoke to you that day and God really used that in your life, hit the share button because when you do that, the algorithms of Facebook say that you have more power to extend the reach of the sermon than we do. So just, again, a shameless plug with how this is a Facebook congregation. Go ahead and like and share and just help spread or keep the, 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 the sermon alive throughout the week. But last week, when we posted that quote, this was the quote. The strength of the church corporately is directly connected to the spiritual efforts of people individually. And so that's the goal of the series, to challenge you to embrace the spiritual habits that cause us to grow stronger as a church. So last week we taught that you would be str- we would be stronger if everyone were pursuing the spirit-filled life. And now for the next two weeks, we want to teach uh, on a couple different habits, the habit of everyone taking a next step, but we want to look at four different next steps that we think every church member should be taking. And so this morning we're going to start out in Ephesians chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I love hearing the rustling of pages. And we're also going to end our time in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so you maybe want to bookmark that as well. But go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Because we think this is the foundational passage in all of the New Testament as to how church is to operate. And like any good builder, we want to start with the foundation because you can work as hard as you want to strengthen the church, uh, but all your work will be, all your efforts will be wasted if the foundation is poor to begin with. And so I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, follow along as I read verses 11 through 16. 
And God gave the church apostles, and he gave prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And he gave them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at these four foundational steps to this week, to next week. And the first foundational step is this, everyone gathering faithfully. Everyone gathering faithfully. It is not lost on me the irony. Last night I texted Pastor Brad and I said, Today we are teaching on, or tomorrow we are teaching on faithful church attendance. On a day it's going to be less than 10 degrees. And he says, Yes, we will be preaching to the choir tomorrow. And so, man, we are glad that you are here. We are glad that you are here to hear this. And so, even though you are already here, gathered faithfully, uh, listen to some of the foundational reasons why we do that. If you just get up and do it every week just because you think you're supposed to, then maybe you're missing the reason, and someday, 30 years later, you'll say, I'm done, I'm not going back. If we painted a picture of church attendance in America, it would be a pretty bleak picture. Uh, More churches closed in America last year than churches opened in America, despite all the aggressive church planning efforts. This past year and this coming year, we have and will send tens of thousands of dollars to an organization uh, within the Southern Baptist uh, Convention called the North American Mission Board. Um, They are, I believe, the greatest church planning uh, organization in the world. And despite their best efforts of planning tens of thousands of churches, more churches closed than opened. Ten years ago, the average uh, size church in America with regard to Sunday morning attendance was 130 people. Fast forward 10 years, and today it's 65 people. For the first time in eight decades that the Gallup poll has tracked American religious membership, more adults in America do not attend church than do attend church. We could give you statistic after statistic about declining church attendance, which honestly makes us as a church even more grateful um, that despite this cultural trend, despite churches, especially larger churches, having uh, the difficulty of of recovering since COVID, we're still talking about that. Uh, Despite all of that, our uh, attendance grew by 7% last year. So we're doing better than most. But even for churches like ours, there is another trend that we as pastors find Uh, equally disturbing, if not more disturbing, and it's the reality that those who still attend church attend less frequently. 30 years ago, uh, the average church attender, to be called called a regular church attender, um, you attended church about three to three and a half times a month. I don't know how you attend church half a time a month, but you get the point right over the course of a year. Um, It was three and a half times a month. Uh, 10 years ago, that number had dropped to 1.4 times a month. And so whatever the statistics are, it looks like it's at least less than twice a month to be considered a regular attender. Let me give you some real statistics that apply even to our church. So uh, this past year, 
um, at our largest campus. And so that gives us kind of the biggest uh, data set to work with. 80% of our attendance uh, comes from the original sending campus in Liberty Township. Uh, so we looked at our children. You have to understand the reality of children when they come to church. I can't tell that you're here necessarily. Until the day comes that we install facial recognition equipment, which I don't think will ever happen. That sounds a little creepy. We don't know that you're here unless on a particular Sunday morning uh, you're a senior adult that attends a Sunday school class and there's a roster. Or if you happen to give on that particular Sunday. Or if you drop your kids off. And so chances are this morning maybe you give online. So we don't know that you were here in the room uh, unless you have a child. Because here's a fact about children. They can't get here on their own. Right? So the only way they're here is if somebody brings them. So last year, starting at the beginning of the, the present school year, 71% of our kids, so three quarters of all the children on our rosters, attended uh, children's church less than twice a month, less than 50% of the time. It's caused us to go back and revamp entirely how we do children's ministry. Uh, Shannon, my wife, who oversees all of uh, family ministries, has even launched into a new curriculum. We were working before in a uh, curriculum called the Gospel Project, where every week it would build on it. It would walk chronologically through the story of the gospel. And what we discovered was when the kids weren't there, uh, they came this week, and it was building on what was here last week, and they weren't here last week. And so we radically changed our approach and we uh, changed the entire curriculum system so that we could more effectively meet that need and more effectively disciple those children that are coming so much less often. Now, as a young pastor, if I had these stats, um, I would have resorted to guilt to address the trend, right? That's what young guys do. We think, man, we beat the sheep, right? And if we beat the sheep, they'll come to church. And that often works for about two or three weeks. But then after that, it's no longer effective. And as I've grown in age and hopefully wisdom, I've come to understand that the reason behind that trend of attending church less often is not because we haven't beat the sheep hard enough, but because there is a wrong belief driving the wrong behavior. How many times have you heard us say this? We do what we do because our heart wants what it wants. And our heart wants what it wants because it believes what it believes. In other words, the foundation of wrong behavior is not the lack of a good motivator, but because of wrong belief. And so here's the wrong belief that has led to the wrong behavior of not faithfully attending church. It's this. It's the belief that church is helpful, but not essential in my spiritual development. And as I was studying that this week, it just, it just smacked me. Okay, this, I've told you all the time, this stuff preaches to me as hard as it preaches at you. It's the belief that church is helpful, but not essential in my spiritual development. And I work for the church. Many of you have children or grandchildren that are involved in some level of sports, from youth soccer all the way up to travel ball. And could you imagine telling your coach, your family, or your, your child, telling your coach, Coach, we're only going to be there 50% of the time. Only 50% of the practice, only 50% of the games. You see, that's a crazy thought. And we too are not content with setting the bar of faithfulness less than 50%. We're appalled at the thought. Now, we love sports, but I don't think that sports should be in the same category as a, of essentialness as what Scripture places on the church. And so let's look at some biblical reasons that faithful attendance should be the norm and not the exception. Right from the text this morning, we see immediately in verse 12 that one of the reasons that we should attend church is because at the church we equip through pastoral teaching. 
Now, if we were to survey 10 different church members or everybody in the room this morning, there's a chance that we would receive 10 different answers on what they think the primary job of the pastor is. Uh, there's a famous research within, researcher within the evangelical world. His name is Tom Rayner. And several years ago, he did uh, some research, and uh, it was just these results were uh, kind of mind-boggling to me. He surveyed members about the role of their pastor, and 89% of the people of the church members that he um, polled or surveyed said that the role of the pastor was to meet the needs of the families in the church. When he surveyed the same pastors from the same churches, their response of what is the role of the pastor was to lead the church to reach the people who are not yet coming. Two completely different answers. Can you see why maybe there's some conflict in the church today? And some see the pastor as a CEO that is to provide the organizational administrative leadership. Some see the pastor as a paid chaplain that's just supposed to meet all the needs of everybody within the congregation to spend all his time on pastoral care. Some see the pastor as the resident theologian, but listen, Ephesians chapter 4 couldn't be any more clear about what the primary role of the pastor is. Look at verse 12. Look at it. What does it say? Why did God give us pastors and why did God give us uh, teachers within the church? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now listen, there are a lot of secondary ways that that can happen. There's a lot of secondary ways that a uh, pastoral team can, um, can equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But the primary way that that happens is through teaching. In the New Testament, uh, there's three different words that are used interchangeably for the office of pastor. There's a word for bishop, uh, pastor, or elder. They're all inter interchangeable terms for the same office. And in the New Testament, the only other office that uh, uh, God has ordained within the life of the church is that of a deacon. And if you were to go to uh, some of the epistles, 1 Timothy in particular, that talks about the qualifications between a deacon and a pastor, they're nearly the same qualifications, uh, nearly similar, except for the pastor, it says he is apt to teach. Uh, a pastor is skilled in the ministry of the word. He, he knows his Bible. He has the ability to communicate its truths effectively. Sometimes that's done interpersonally. Sometimes that's done in small groups and smaller settings. But the primary environment that we see in the New Testament and for 2,000 years of church history, we've witnessed the primary environment is the weekly worship service. When we gather together corporately for worship. Now we can't say legalistically this is the only God-ordained place that this can happen. We think about those countries where there's such persecution they can't meet on a, on a regular basis. They can't meet together as a large group. But those are the exceptions, not the norm. And the normal pattern that we see both in Scripture and in church history is that the church comes together uh, to be taught. That's where pastoral teaching takes place. One of the things that sometimes people are surprised by is when we uh, share our conviction as pastors, we believe that the primary purpose is to equip saints. It's not to evangelize the lost. You know, Billy Graham... Uh, in all of his brilliance and all the wonderful kingdom things that he did, that was not church. That was an evangelistic crusade. And God used it mightily, but in church, the, uh, the uh, opportunity that we have is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they can then go out and be the evangelization arm of the church. Now, every week we invite lost people into relationship with Jesus, but the main thing that we do that differs from an evangelistic crusade is that our goal, our role is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. 
And so if you ever wonder why we try to explain things as plainly as possible, it's not because we didn't attend seminary. It's not because we don't know the big words. It's because we're trying to make these truths as practical as possible. About a year ago, somebody said to me, they said, I don't think that my pastor is that good of a theologian. He's a wonderful communicator, but I'm not sure that he's a great theologian. And I said, why that? Why is that? Well, because he just speaks so plainly and simply. And I said, well, maybe that's the sign that he's a good theologian. The old uh, radio pastor, J. Vernon McGee, I can still hear his voice. If, you, if you've uh, ever listened to him on the radio, he's uh, gone on to be the Lord, uh, with the Lord years and years ago. But he used to say that the role of the pastor is to take the cookies and put them on the bottom shelf. And to make that easy for people to understand and for, to practically uh, apply these truths to our lives. And so we gather together weekly to equip you to be more like Christ. We do that through our teaching, we do that through corporate worship, and then we do that by, at the end by reminding you that, that our role as a church is to go and take the gospel out. That's why we say the Great Commission each and every week. And so you may be thinking this morning, well, I don't want to be legalistic, but, right, that's how that, that sentence always starts, uh, Pastor, I don't want to be legalistic, and then I say it for you, but, but how many times do you think that you know, we should attend church each month. Like, what is the, uh, if it used to be 3.4, should it be 3, should it be, like, what is that number? And we would answer that question with a question, how equipped do you want to be to live for Christ? How equipped do you want to be to live for Christ? There's a second belief that we want to embrace this morning regarding the uh, importance of faithfully gathering each week, and Pastor Brad touched briefly on this last week, and it's that corporate worship is a means of grace. We have talked about this ad nauseum. We have talked so often about these buckets of grace or means of grace or habits of grace. I like calling them fountains or spigots of grace. This is a stream of God's grace that is uh, present somewhere. And we have to make the effort to put ourselves under that stream of grace. Now, it's not more saving grace. Saving grace is a kind of a one and done. God has saved us, and he is going to keep us. But then there is empowering grace. And empowering grace allows us to live by the Spirit, exactly what we talked about last week. Romans 8, verse one, uh, 11 actually says that God uh, gives us the Spirit, and that Spirit brings life to our mortal bodies. And what that means is through the power of the Spirit that we can do spiritual things that we otherwise wouldn't have the power to do. And one of the ways that we feed the Holy Spirit is through the spiritual disciplines. And one of the spiritual disciplines is gathering together corporately to worship. Our book of the year this year is Praying Through the Bible. It's uh, by author and professor Donald Whitney. And Dr. Whitney is a professor at Southern Seminary. And just this week, uh, Pastor David from our Lebanon campus had an opportunity to visit Southern Seminary and actually sit as a guest in one of his lectures and actually got to talk to him about the fact that, hey, our church has used um, this little book. You may have heard of it, David said. It was called Praying Through the Bible. It's our book of the year. And it was a neat interaction. And um, it, it was fun to engage with him. And doc, uh, Dr. Whitney has said the following. He, he wrote this a few years back. He said, there is an element of worship and Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or by watching worship. You guys remember COVID when for that period of time we shut everything down and we watched worship. We watched somebody uh, play a guitar. Uh, we watched somebody sing. And listen, we did what we had to do and what we could do. And it was uh, good in the moment, but it was hard. Watching worship was hard because you're not as engaged in worship. He said, uh, Professor Whitney said, there are some graces and some blessings that God only gives in the meeting together 
with other believers. And so let's ask that question again. How faithful should I be in my attendance? And again, we would ask the question in response, how much empowering grace do you want in your life? Are you content to settle for only 50% of the empowering grace that's available to you each week simply by putting yourself under this means of grace, this spigot of grace called corporate worship. We literally could preach an entire message here, uh, but all I want to say, um, and then we'll move on, practically speaking, uh, corporate worship, I read this a while back, corporate worship is the conveyor belt that moves you into relationships, and it moves you into serving. And relationships and serving are the two things that are essential in your quest to look more like Jesus. So when we pray that our church members would look more like Jesus, it's that they would be on this conveyor belt called corporate worship where they would be bringing themselves or moving themselves into relationships and into opportunities to serve. Again, we'll, uh, we'll move on from here because I am preaching to the choir this morning so everyone uh, attends faithfully. And habit number two is everyone gives generously. Everyone gives generously. Uh, more than just one of you just said to yourself, I knew it. I knew that they were going to touch on giving. And so bear with me and don't check out quite yet because this is so much more than just money. In fact, giving generously entails living sacrificially. And so that's really what we want to talk about. Everyone living sacrificially for Jesus. I told you that we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so go ahead and flip over to that now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're not going to necessarily read through a set of verses, but we do want to highlight a few truths from this passage. And the first truth I want you to see in verses 6, 7, and 8 is that our deepest longing should be for heaven, not for earth. Paul said that his heart longed for heaven because outside of heaven, he realized his heart was never going to be fully satisfied. He lived with this holy restlessness on this side of eternity because he knew that nothing temporal would ever satisfy his longings. Look at verse 6. Paul says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body... We are away from the Lord, and then skip to verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, but we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, you think through that thought for just a second. That's a crazy thing. What he's saying is, I would rather not be here. Here we are fighting, kicking, and screaming to stay here, and Paul's longing for uh, the next destination. He's longing for where he's headed and one of the reasons I think that we have a hard time living sacrificially is because we have been deceived into thinking that our hearts are going to be satisfied with temporal things. Confession, one of my unhealthy obsessions, is that I love Air Jordans. Air Jordans were the basketball shoe, in case you don't know, I've been living under a rock. Um, the shoe that Michael Jordan made famous, he wore his entire career, and they continue to produce them. In fact, I'll show my age a little bit. We're on uh, Air Jordan Model 38 right now. So for 38 years, they've been producing them. And I remember when the ones came out. Uh, I remember looking at them in the store. I remember drooling over them. Uh, in high school, I wanted a, Air, a pair of Air Jordans so badly I could taste them. But they were $75, which back in the mid-'80s was a lot of money. And it was not happening in my family. I was a pastor's kid. Um, it wasn't even a consideration, and so I wore a pair of Converse from 
uh, $25 pair of Converse from Meyer Thrifty Acres. But now 38 years later, uh, Nike has cast in, cashed in on that nostalgia of all the little boys like me. And so they continue to re-release these shoes over and over and over that now we can afford. And so I have begun over the years, the last 10 years, to obsess and dream about these shoes. And I can finally afford to buy them even though they're sometimes four or five or even 10 times more expensive than they were originally. But can I tell you, after nearly 40 years of dreaming about these shoes, and now with my own ability to own a growing collection of Air Jordans, they don't quite bring the satisfaction that I thought they would. Now, don't get me wrong, I still enjoy them, okay? I bought a new pair last night, literally. And so I still enjoy them, I still like having them. But um, listen, I, I share this silly example as a way of saying like, what's your Air Jordan? What is that lie that maybe you have bought into or fallen for that says, hey,